Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show 165. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Well, welcome to one of the worst bloody weather days we've had oh man england is in a grip of snow and everything like that and it's honestly it's just shocking it's so bad i went to work the i've been doing a few night shifts and you don't mind not getting into work it's when you can't get out and i was there for over 18 hours on a night shift done my night shift and just couldn't get out <laughs> like i say it's blizzard it's got the whole country now gripped in this snow and you know kids love it <laughs> just it's because i travel so far to work it's just horrible do you know what i mean i've seen so many and four-wheel drives overturned in ditches and it's just so nasty so with my new job coming up hopefully that'll be soon as well do you know i can get it's only a few mile away i can get up there soon so that would make such a difference but yes from a snowy headquarters starships over headquarters everyone welcome i'll give you a little heads up what's coming in to today's show we have an interview with Greg Bear. He's got a new book out there. He's a hard science fiction writer. He's got a new one out called Hull Zero Three. So we've got a little interview with Greg Bear. Then we have a little, a little bit of a, you know, a promo, sort of a promo from Morgan Saletta. The new or his copy of Starship Sova's Volume Two landed on his doormat, and he was very kind enough to record a little section four then we have the main fiction which is clifford d simak the world that couldn't be and if you remember last month this is the, the beginning of the month this is where we normally do the then and now show and because of two things 
headed us in the direction of not doing the kind of then and now, putting it on hold for a little bit, but still playing, you know, a classic. Um, I think I'll just still play a classic, you know, story and not have the, the kind of competition for the moment. You know, we'll see how it goes after the new year. But it's because last month, you know, there was that, it wasn't fair, I couldn't really class the competition, so I'm not going to give the results out. I had to really pull the Lucia Shepherd story, you know, so that didn't help. And then, you know, losing my hard disk and using up all my stories straight away. You know, I haven't got that hard disk finished or fixed or anything like that. So what I think what I think I'll do is I'll get some more and this is a this is a call to arms, do you know what I mean? Narrators. If you want to narrate out there, if you fancy narrating some good old classic well any kind of science fiction, but I'm gonna get some of the you know the old timers out there again and get them narrated some good old stories. So if you want to have a bash at that, please get in touch. Do you know what I mean? That would be fantastic. Get in touch and we'll we'll get a story sent over to you and we'll we'll try and get you on the show narrating. Then we have, guess what it is, that year, that time of year has come round again. It is the 2011 Sofa Nord Awards. It is kicking off. We have a new host, a new presenter for that, Phil Horwood, who's taken over from Mark Bowman. And it's just, you know, this is it. This is the time to get your votes out and get everything sorted, or get your votes in and get everything sorted. If you don't get an email, you know, and like I say, we've got this, vote and poll system all sorted out and Phil will talk all about that but if you haven't gotten an email from her come over to the front of the website there is a link on the oh, let's have a look. I can never see that straight away right hand side of the screen click on that top of the, the right hand side and that'll take you to the first round of the voting system so yes there's some new additions in there as well so do look out for that I'm, I'm Chuffed to bits with Phil, you know what I mean? He stepped in there, Mark couldn't make it this year, and Phil's just done an amazing job, so look out for that. Then we have a little promo by Telegraph Connect to play, and that is today's show, show 165. Like I say, apologies if you're wanting the then and now, but couple of things have just led to my decision just to kind of put that on hold for a little bit but we're still going to play you know a story from the kind of the golden age if you'd like so hope you'll stick around and enjoy the show so first up is an interview with that writer greg bear you know known for hard science fiction and it was just nice to you know i knew he had a new book coming out and i just want to love to get him on the show and ask him a few questions so greg nice of you to come on board starship sofa my pleasure once again thank you so much now and you've had this probably a load of times but you're often referred to as the hard science fiction writer but i'm wondering is there you know one theme or a couple of themes in science fiction other than hard science fiction that you've got a bit of a soft spot for I've got, I, I love them all. You know, I've, I've covered all the territories. I think in science fiction, the uh, the old guard fans tend to regard things involving uh, uh, ast- astronomy and physics as hard science fiction, and they're less sure about biology and that sort of stuff. They they tend to to, to categorize those things as like thrillers or whatever bio thrillers. I don't make any distinction. I grew up on John Wyndham. H.G. Wells, uh, you know, I grew up on uh, everything from uh, uh, Day of the Triffids to uh, First Men on the Moon, so I know biology and astronomy all mesh together very nicely in science fiction. 
You know, you mentioned there like, the old God, and you've got like a lot of new readers now. You know, with your, your, your modern works as well. Is is that a nice place to be for Greg Bear? You know, to have like you know kind of your back history of your work, and then you're taking on all these new readers. I'm talking about you know the, the video game industry. You know, people who are into Halo and, and them kind of games as well. Oh yeah, it's it's great fun, and it, it you know it, I think it's essential that uh, I keep understanding what readers are doing and thinking. The other thing is that science fiction has influenced so many people and so much of popular culture today that it's hard to distinguish between young readers enjoying this side of science fiction or that side of science fiction. I think they actually have a very broad uh, experience with science fiction, and it's fun to, to explore that, too, to see what's going to be happening next in science fiction, what they want, what they'll be writing, uh, you know, where the whole idea of imaginative literature is going to be going. Is it still exciting for you? Do you know what I mean? Like you say, I'm not saying you've, you've been in this game a while, but you know, you, you've been around the block a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> I look back and it's been a remarkably long time. You know, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, uh, you know, meeting Isaac Asimov uh, for the first time, or of course Ray Bradbury, who I first met back in 1967. Uh, you know, these these guys uh, seemed very mature to me, and yet they're younger than I am at that point. Uh, that you know, their writing careers were younger than my writing career is now. So, so yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It's, and as far as excitement goes, it's aggravating. It's always aggravating. Writing a book and watching it go out there and trying to figure out what the reaction is going to be. It's it's never changed for me. It's really exciting to write the book. It's really exciting to get the reactions on the book. But it's a constant challenge, and I think that's the way it should be. I don't think we should ever get complacent. You know, you, you hit on there like a, a question I was going to ask you. You've won, you know, oodles of awards there. When you f- finish a Not book... Not nearly enough. <laughs> you know, when you finish the book and, <laughs> and you type in the end, do, do you sometimes... Can, can you tell, like you say, this is a good one, this is going to win awards, or when you type the end, have you got honestly no idea that this could win awards or this could just, you know, be a big seller? No, I, I actually have no idea at all. Uh, I kind of leave that up to the publishers to decide. Uh, when I was writing City at the End of Time, I thought it would be a very accessible, popular book, but a lot of readers came back and said, hey, this is really hard. And then a lot more readers came back and said, love it. You just can't gauge what the what the reaction is going to be. It's going to be across the board. It's going to be interesting. But also, some books hit right away, and some books take years to develop. So you take a look at, like, Tolkien, for example, who uh, published his books in the 1950s, and they didn't take off until the 1960s. Uh, Dune was a pretty good seller, and then suddenly it took off like a rocket in the 1980s. Um, there's all of these stories of slow burns and instant explosions and, you know, huge reactions and, and, and people getting used to it. What you've got is the audience is an organic uh, whole that reacts to things, you know, the way we react maybe to a new dish in a restaurant or something. It just takes time. But in many instances, I'm surprised to see that a book that I thought was difficult uh, turns out to be incredibly, uh, uh, you know, popular and rapid, and that's what's happening with Hall Zero Three. Uh, nearly all the reviews I'm reading are saying, you know, couldn't put the book down, read it in one sitting, and uh, that's very gratifying because I thought it was perhaps more difficult than it should have been. Well, we'll get to you. You know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that book. We'll get to that in a minute or two. But I want to talk about, you know, Blood Music is credited as 
being you know one of the first accounts of in science fiction as, as nanotechnology is that something you're kind of still immensely proud of or was it just one of those you know those writers ideas that came to you and you know you, you forget about them now and you're moving on to the next idea <laughs> i'm happy to claim credit but uh, I, I think it's a more complicated story than that back then uh, eric drexler was already writing papers about the possibilities of nanotechnology and proposing nanotechnological spacecraft and that sort of thing. Uh, he hadn't actually written his major book at that point, Engines of Creation, so uh, in terms of book publication, we kind of swept in, but, but blood music is about organic nanotechnology, not about what Trexler was initially describing, which was a kind of a you know, miniaturized silicon-based machine, and that was based on Richard Feynman's idea of the ever-diminishing factory that, that, that can make smaller and smaller factories. Um, what blood music was suggesting was a two things, and I think both of those were borne out later. That DNA was a kind of uh, a self-ordered computational system, and that uh, the real nanotechnology would exist and has already existed for billions of years in the biological realm. That a protein molecule is a nano machine. All of these things uh, kind of merged in my head before the birth of nanotechnology as we know it today. I think uh, then, then later on, the controversy for me was, well, is it going to be silicon-based nanotechnology? Is it going to be computational? Or is it going to be organic, non-computational, non-mathematic, uh, you know, evolutionary in its nature? And I think we're seeing that nanotechnology is heading over more towards the biological now. You know, it sounds that you, you keep up with all the, like, the sciences that, that are going on. Is that true or... Do you just dip in every now and again to, to help you write on? Or is this one like a sciences, you know, the real sciences out there? Is that a big hobby of yours? Absolutely. I, I try to keep up with all the magazines. I don't nearly, do nearly a good enough a job. You know, I just can't keep up with a lot of the stuff. But I'm always picking up Science Digest or, uh, uh, not rather, uh, Science News or New Scientist or, you know, Science or Nature. And I love these magazines. I just love picking up the articles and dipping into the thoughts of scientists and their discoveries. Uh, you know, apparently NASA is coming up with something this Thursday that might be intriguing. There's going to be an announcement, and, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but I, I got to say that I go back and forth between you know reading history books and reading science, and I'm just you know trying to keep up on everything. And it's a tough job. I've got twenty thousand books in my library, and don't ask me if I've read them all. <laughs> you wrote a trilogy of books with Gregory Benford and David Brin. Can you tell us how that was? What was that like to write with other people? And you know what? What is this trilogy about? Well, Benford and Brennan and I have been chums, you know, ever since Benford was young, and so that takes us way back. Uh, but but in fact, uh, Gregory uh, worked this over with the estate with Janet Asimov and suggested this, and then came to us and persuaded us to do it. And we found, oh, this could be really intriguing. The estate was very helpful. Uh, Janet was, was really sweet about the whole thing, and she gave us freedom to do what we wanted to do. Um, the results, I think, were, were pretty intriguing. Uh, I, I, I found that I had to write between Benford and Brin, and that was like you know standing between two elephants crushing up against each other. So I slimmed my story time period down to just about a week. And that was fine by me, because uh, then I could fulfill in what was going on behind the scenes in the first chapter of the first Foundation story. Um, and it was interesting to actually channel Isaac in a, in a peculiar way. Uh, uh, by, by reading all of his books, and I, of course I've read them all before, but rereading them and then reading the autobiography and that sort of thing, I kind of uploaded Isaac into my head. And he's a very pleasant person to be around in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I kind of, I think, picked up some hints of the tricks he used to create the Foundation series. 
uh, put that in, in, in disguise in the book, and we all had great fun doing it. We were very honored to be asked to do it. It's uh, part of this whole thing that, that science fiction is a family affair, that we're always arguing with each other and invading each other's dreams and trying to figure out how to do it better. And this was a particularly gratifying example. And you're also doing, again, something new and fresh with Neil Stevenson, you know, even taking, you know, putting stories on iPods and iPads and everything like that. I would love you to tell us a little bit about this experiment that's going on. Well, Neil, for, for uh, a couple of years now, has been uh, uh, organizing these uh, Western martial arts uh, classes, which he invited me to join, and my son and I joined, and we had great fun learning how to do gentleman's cane fighting, bartitsu as it's known. Uh, and, and then we graduated to, you know, to swords, and now we're concentrating on swords, long swords, uh, uh, German training, Italian training, uh, you know, all these different techniques, which are, again, more sport than actual warfare, because if you take a pike staff, you can take a swordsman out in a flash. But we love working with the swords. We love working with the sword makers and the technology. And so gradually we thought, well, maybe we could put a story together based on this uh, experience we're going through, this uh, expertise we're acquiring sort of slowly. And so uh, Neil and Mark Teppo and uh, a number of us put together this uh, continuing series in this universe that Neil is calling the foreworld. Uh, historical for the most part so far, but also explaining a lot of large-scale mysteries and history and a lot of trends. And we decided to begin our first story at the siege, uh, just after the siege of Legnitz uh, in uh, Legnica in Poland in 1241. And this is the, uh, the high water mark uh, as the Mongols head west to invade Europe. They pull back at this point. And we say, well, that's an interesting story. Why did they pull back? Let's tell that story. So we've got Mongols, we've got knights, we've got uh, a secret order, uh, the OMVI. We've got uh, you know a young girl who is part of this other secret order known as the Binders. All of this lost history is being recreated by our authors uh, and uh, watched over by Mark Teppo and and guided by Neil. And I come in and contribute you know uh, flashes of details and the gore and the mythology and. Uh, and that sort of thing, and and I also have been supplying a number of epiphanies recently, which is interesting. These would be my specialty at this point. But but yeah, so the, it's going out to iPads, iPhones, to the Kindle, uh, and it's delivered on uh, a serial basis, like an old-fashioned Dickens novel in the, in the 19th century. Has it got any fantastical elements to it, or is it you know purely set in that kind of time, but a, you know a, a fiction story? Well, right now it looks pretty historical, but we are adding in some elements which do point toward a more mystical approach. We are going to be making some major revelations down the road, and we're heading in that direction. Uh, I think the readers will discover as, as, as they go through the characters and so on that there's a lot of hidden esoteric knowledge here uh, that they haven't you know, read in the history books before. Uh, and and uh, whether or not that stuff could have been real is hard to say. Uh, we have to fit it into the historical context. We have to make it convincing. And we often work on the basis of, well, if something could have happened and the people were right for it at the time and it would have been useful at the time, then could it in fact have existed? Quite often we find under the circumstances, oh my gosh, the Chinese had flamethrowers, the Mongols had flamethrowers, you know. <laughs> we didn't even think of that. So we keep discovering new wrinkles to history, which back up our, our feeling that history is more radical than many of us suppose. So how... Um, I'm Fascinated to find out, how did you first team up with Neil Stevenson then? How long you known Neil Stevenson? 
Well, of course, we're both Northwest writers, and so we've been hanging around. Uh, I, I came to the Northwest uh, 23 years ago. Uh, Neil's been up here nearly that long. Uh, and we get together, and uh, we have mutual friends and uh, mutual respect for each other. And so Neil comes out to our parties, and we go see him at his parties. And eventually we just sort of, you know, brought all this together with these other writers. And uh, we kind of uh, stand back and let them be creative and move in. And uh, with, you know, occasional clashes, but remarkably little ego, uh, it's, it's actually fun to work with these guys. It's certainly fun to work with Neil. And it's fun to be trained by Neil in sword fighting. He's passionate about this, and he uh, he's taught me an awful lot about movement and and self protection. I now own two swords, and uh, it's an impressive thing to have you know a three foot long sword in your hand, a, a double handed sword. So is that a, is that a, with your sword fencing? That is that a good workout for you? Does it does it get the blood pumping and the heart pounding? Absolutely, especially if you have to put on armor and go flacking each other, you know. <laughs> if we're doing uh, uh, sparring or, or uh, you know, heavy-duty practicing, we use blunts. We use uh, stainless steel or plastic blunt swords, what we call I-beams, uh, because you don't want to use anything that's got even a slight edge on it. Uh, so we have to put on uh, basically uh, lacrosse gloves, uh, we have to put on uh, hockey masks. We have to put on lacrosse armor across our waist. If we're going to be doing this stuff seriously, it's it's pretty dangerous. So we have to be very careful about it. You know, you, you talk about swords and everything like that. And, you know, getting back to your writing, you've tried fantasy and you've even tried horror as well. I'm just wondering, you know, for Greg Bear, what's that like to, to write a horror story? Well, I've always uh, been equally at home in all of these things as far as my reading goes. I'm a big fan of, of course, horror and ghost stories and H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, you know, I've collected Arkham House. I was very proud to be published by Arkham House, which seemed like, you know, circling back on a great old tradition. Um, I uh, love fantasy. I've always enjoyed uh, all sorts of varieties of imaginative literature, uh, as, as as my father-in-law over the years. Paul Anderson, of course, wrote hard science fiction, but he also wrote historical fiction and fantasy. And uh, he didn't dibble, dabble so much into ghost stories and horror, uh, but I, I'm happy to, to explore that territory too. You know, I was going to—I was—I wasn't whether to ask you about your, you know, your, your good wife Astrid. You know, is the daughter of Paul Anderson. Oh, Paul An- what was it like to 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 meet Paul Anderson? You know, was it was it intimidating for you when you're you know, a young pup of a writer there? You know, meeting one of these great writers and then you know eventually marrying his daughter. Was what was all that like? <laughs> it was hectic, but uh, <laughs> Paul was always lovely. The thing about science fiction, I, I, I first met Paul back, I believe, in the 19, early 1970s. Had him come over to San Diego State to give a talk in 1972. A big fan of his uh, going back to the 1960s. Uh, but, but Paul was always very accessible and never snobbish and never hard to get to know. Uh, very giving of his time and his advice. And so we exchanged letters on scientific matters and that sort of stuff. And eventually Astrid and I got together and, uh, you know, and got married and, uh, and, and gave him grandkids, which was, I think, uh, very gratifying for him. So uh, we've got, uh, you know, Paul and Karen as, as part of our family tradition and both poets and writers and historical researchers. Karen, to this day, he helps me out occasionally on doing research. Uh, we're watching over the Paul Anderson estate uh, right now and trying to keep that uh, moving along. And there's been great republishing efforts. It's very gratifying to have been there when he was creating some of his finest works, to have uh, you know, uh, sat down and had drinks with him and with his brother, John Anderson, and with Karen and, and Astrid, and eventually the grandkids chiming in. Uh, 
uh, you know, how much fun is that to watch three generations? So now his grandson, Eric, is publishing an original comic series. He's writing comic scripts. He's also doing a Jurassic Park series. Both of these will be out next year. His original series is called Hope Scouts, and we look forward to seeing that next year, too. Uh, his daughter, his granddaughter, Alex, is, uh, is writing a novel at this moment. And his daughter, Astrid, has sold her first mystery story in collaboration with a friend of ours named Diane Clark. So all goes on. It all continues. <laughs> the, writing, the writing in the family is getting uh, very rich and thick. That's amazing. That, that's just excellent. You know, you, you do a lot of writing in other people's universes. You know, you've got Larry Niven's Man Kazin Wars there, like I mentioned before, the Halo universe and Star Trek. Do you find it's easy for yourself to kind of just fit into someone's universe and just expand it that little bit more? If I have a feel for it, if I love the universe, it's easy. Of course, I was a Star Trek fan from way back, from being a kid. So I, the, the characters just spoke in my head when I wrote my Star Trek novel. It wasn't hard at all. I could do it in like three months. The Star Wars book was, I was given a chance to write in between the lines, so to speak, uh, and given a remarkable amount of freedom, and that made that enjoyable, too. Um, in a sense, we're all kind of working within the, the larger science fictional uh, context, and, and so to be given a chance to focus specifically on something like that is, is, uh, is really interesting. It, it allows you to squeeze down and, and, again, channel an author, channel a way of thinking about a story, and that's a good discipline, too. You have, like you say before, you Hull Zero Three coming out. It's coming out this month. Tell us a little bit about Hull Hull Three Zero, Hull Zero Three. Well, it's, it? yeah, it's it's a, uh, a kind of a classic starship novel. One of my favorite themes has always been the Generation Starship. Of course, it begins with uh, Universe by Paul Anderson, some earlier story, or by uh, by Robert Heinlein. Some earlier stories uh, carried on the notion of the Generation Starship, but I think Universe, um, uh, Orphans in the Sky, carried it to, to a really uh, detailed degree, really wonderful story. Uh, Brian Aldous picked it up in his one of his early novels, Nonstop, which published in the United States as Starship, and I love that book. And then we get, you know, the, the theme being carried on in stories kind of like Rondo with Rama and, and that sort of thing. I do a bit of that in Eon. Uh, so I wanted to rethink the whole thing and come back and ask myself, okay, how would you actually build one of these things? How could we take today's science and extrapolate it just a little bit and figure out what it would be uh, like to, to create one of these starships? And the first thing you have to have is an awful lot of fuel. If you're going to get anywhere close to, uh, you know, traveling at, a, at even a fraction of the speed of light, the, uh, the rocket equations tell you you're going to need an incredible amount of reaction mass. So I've strapped my starship to a, a small ice moon from the Oort cloud. Now, having done all that thinking, I said to myself, okay, putting all this together is going to be incredibly expensive. It's going to drain the resources of a major civilization even to build these things. So how are they going to safeguard them? How are they going to, uh, uh, you know, create a robustness in the ship such that they can survive many different possible challenges? Uh, and at that point, I drop my character into the middle of the story, give him a dream background that is just idyllic, and then the real background, which is utterly horrifying. And he has to figure out things from there because he's like a newborn. He has to learn everything all over again. Uh, and everyone along the way is in the same situation. What the heck happened to this ship? How did it go so wrong? We learn that as we go through Hall 03, and the journey of discovery is also a journey of growing up. Uh, and for me, it's a way of kind of bringing back the style of authors like Roger Zelazny and Philip K. Dick, 
and playing with all the themes that these masters have used before. How much actual research went into this book? Because it sounds like you, it sounds like there's, there's a number of lots of research goes into lots of books. Is is that the case? Well, it has to. If you're going to be writing a book that's convincing, you've got to think through both the visual elements, the character elements. Of course, character always comes first. Uh, but character comes out of their situation, too. It comes out of the culture and, you know, the tools that they use and determine a lot of, of characters. When we're putting a story together that is going to be read by people who have seen and read a lot of science fiction, you've got to be careful. Uh, it has to be convincing. It cannot be too detailed. You know, you may do all the background research, but you don't want to stick the actual diagrams and circuitry in the story. You leave that for the DVD extras. But, uh, but in creating a story like this, my whole thing is to tell a cracking good story and make it convincing and make it, in this case, very scary. Um, the metaphor, of course, is, heck, we're all going into life naked, cold, and wondering what the hell's going on. And how is that not, you know, Earth is has got to be something like a generation starship. Is that it for this book, or will, could there be more in this universe? I'm not so sure. This one covers its territory very well. Uh, it's not a very long book, but I think it says tells its story, and so I'm not sure we can go back and, and revive that. Uh, uh, there are other you know books that I'm continuing series on. Of course, Mariposa has been out in the United States here in paperback now so this November. Uh, that follows on from Quantico, and those books actually are now lacing into uh, Moving Mars, Heads, Queen of Angels, and Slant, historically. So I've got, that's actually a five-novel sequence starting, say, from you know 2014 and going into uh, 2300. Um, that's fun to do, to, to, to find out that the politics I set up 20 years ago for Queen of Angels is uh, you know still still effective today. I can still take those prognostications and work with them. Uh, in in a, story, a series like Eon, I've actually written you know an early story, um, The Wind from a Burning Woman, leading into the, the Eon universe, the Thistledown series. Uh, that would be Eon and Legacy and Eternity and uh, The Way of All Ghosts, um, a short, shorter uh, novella. Uh, all, all those things keep me going. Uh, at this point, I'm deciding, you know, whether to write a sequel to Forge of God and Anvil of Stars. Uh, there's there's probably a book left in that series, too. We haven't quite followed through on the history of the children uh, at the end of Anvil of Stars. So, yeah, series are, are always interesting, but one-offs, I think, require a peculiar discipline. If I, if I were uh, to, to, you know, plan out a nine-book series, that would be interesting. I've never done that before. You know, when you, you talk about your sciences and you like to keep, keep up with the sciences and you're putting the sciences in your stories, have you ever gotten the sciences wrong in one of your stories? Oh, certainly, but you know, not specific facts so much as uh, interpolations as to what's going to be going on. Uh, but, you know, I've had remarkably good luck with the science in my stories. Uh, broadly speaking, they're still pretty up-to-date. Uh, the nanotechnology I describe in, in Queen of Angels and Slant and, and then Moving Mars is, you know, if we're going to have any nanotechnology at all, it's probably going to be like that. Um, if I get into the biology of Darwin's radio or Darwin's children, uh, that biology is actually uh, almost 95% still working today. And a lot of it was very speculative back in 1999, and certainly back in 1995 when I started putting it together. Uh, so, so that's gratifying to see scientists still bringing up papers and saying, look, look, you were right. 
you know, and uh, that that comes from having you know having read a lot of scientific papers and and starting to pick out threads that perhaps the scientists weren't uh, looking at seriously. Uh, so a lot of it comes out of not just the research but the ability to to figure out where this research is going to go. Do you think as well, Lou? Does it matter in in the end in the grand scale of things if you've got a cracking good story there? Does it really matter, yeah. or or do you do you think it, yes, it does matter? <laughs> Well, if you're going to write about, you know, scientists as characters or starships or whatever, I think it does matter because if the authenticity isn't there, a reader's going to lose interest. If you're writing, you know, more uh, free-form fantasy or whatever, of course it doesn't really matter. One of my favorite writers is Ray Bradbury. Um, now, Ray, when he wanted to, could be very, very perspicacious about his science. Uh, when he writes a story like The Velt, he's anticipating, you know, um, virtual reality uh, when he writes Fahrenheit 451, he's anticipating both sociological and technological trends. So he could go both ways. When he's writing a fantasy story or even a science fiction story about emotions set on Mars, he's a master at it. Uh, he wasn't so much concerned about the science as, as how he could fit it in in a way that would communicate with the reader. And so his rockets are perhaps not scientists' rockets or engineers' rockets, but those metaphors, they're wonderful. So just a final question then, Greg. What's planned for the future then? What can we find out that's coming out from you, or what, what plans have you got? Well, we're working through this Halo trilogy, and I'm having a great time working with the uh, wonderful creators at 343, uh, who have assumed the, ma- the Halo mantle, and are now uh, working away with me on, uh, on, on going back 100,000 years to figure out what the Forerunners were like. The Forerunners are the uh, civilization that built the Halos, created all of the architecture that, that so many millions of fans have, have explored uh, you know, for the last few years. Um, so that's a privilege to go back and look at that and help create the origin story, basically. Two more novels due on that. Uh, I'm proposing another book soon uh, to, to my publisher here in the United States, uh, and no doubt to Golance and in the U.K., um, and uh, I've got a TV script that I've been working on, working with Vince Gerardus, who's... Uh, a producer and uh, agent here who's done some marvelous work putting shows together. Um, he's had something like seven TV shows in development now. Uh, and so this is all very exciting. I would love to get a chance to uh, to help put together a TV series, you know, watch a movie being made. We're still waiting for more activity on uh, Forge of God Anvil of Stars, which have been in the works at, at uh, Phoenix Pictures and Warner Brothers for seven years now. So, uh, yeah, sometimes it takes these things a remarkably long time to get together. But along the way, you know, it's just constantly keeping me moving around and thinking, and uh, thank God for that, because otherwise I'd, I'd just be out there with a, a sword wound in my head and <laughs> trying to recover. <laughs> Greg, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Good talking to you guys. Take good care. You too. There you go. I'll put a link on to Greg Bear's site and there'll be a link there as well to the Hull Zero Three book. If you want to go out and purchase that, please, by all means, do. That would be fantastic. Now, as you know, Starship Sova... <laughs> did, did anybody know? Starship Sova's Volume 2 is out and it's been fantastic. You know, sales have been amazing. Thank you so much for everyone. Honestly, everyone that supported this show and bought that book. I bought copies, different versions of that book. And some people have been buying different versions as well. Do you know what I mean? Amazing. Morgan Saletta, treat yourself to one of the kind of the big, the big cherry on the top cake parts of the book. You're the one with the signatures in. And... 
Morgan's very kindly sent over this little audio narration, not narration, little sample, you know, fact article about that. So, Morgan, over to you, sir. Okay, now this is pretty exciting. I have a little card in my hand. It says, Postal Article to be Delivered. A blue and white card with a red and white Australia Post symbol on it. It's got my name and address on it. Morgan Saletta. The postman's really lazy. He never drops packages off. He always just drops the card off. I don't even reckon he even swings by with the package. He leaves it back at the uh, the news agent that uh, where I collect my mail. It's a little shop that sells magazines and newspapers. So I'm hoping as I walk there, I'm going to get my coffee and then head off to work on the tram. I'm hoping that this is a package from Tony C. Smith with the uh, latest Starship Sofa stories. Uh, I lashed out and bought the special edition with the uh, signed copy, the signed copy from all the authors. I felt a little bit dizzy after I made that purchase. <laughs> it's quite a big purchase for me, or certainly for a book. Um, but I thought, well, it'll really be worth it. It's quite a special treat, I think. So here's hoping that it actually is the Starship Sofa story. And uh, I'll be back with you when I get it in my hot little hands. All right, I've just been to the post office, and oh, the frustration of it. The package is actually a solar charger for my iPod for when I go out bush, which I'm happy to have. But it's not the package I was hoping from Tony C. Smith. I'm waiting. I'll be back with you when it actually arrives. All right. Well, this is indeed the package, the special edition of uh, Starship Sofa's Collected Stories, Volume 2. I lashed out and got the signed copies with specials. I'm tearing this open. I had to fight the urge to tear this open on the tram coming into work. I'm hiding up in the tea room right now. Oh. Well, Tony, this looks great. Wow. Wow. Really nice job. This is really a classic, classic-looking book. I really like the retro effect. I think the guy that does this is D. Kunif. Kunif. Wow. Um... Fantastic. Oh, and there are the signatures. Number 11 of a lim- limited print run of 25 of the special signed edition of Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 2. Wow. 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 This is so cool. Tony, thank you so much. This is, this is going to be a prized possession. I can't wait to have a better look through this. Wow, the artwork looks fantastic. This is such a nice book. Oh, can't thank you enough. Honestly, Tony, I've got to tell you, I feel like a kid at Christmas opening this book. I've just had a look through and looked at the photos of the uh, authors in their studios. That's great. Um, thank you so much. I just, the, the, your show has been such a big part of my life uh, for the last couple of years. I started listening back when you and Kieran were running it together. And, um, yeah, it's been great to be a part of it. And just thanks so much for doing all that. And 
the book. It's great. Take care. There you go, Morgan. Thank you so much for that. That's lovely. Thank you. That's exactly what I needed. And don't forget, if you haven't, treat yourself to this. It is coming up to Christmas. Do you know what I mean? Two good things you could do. You could support Starship Silver by getting a copy and treating whoever, a friend, wife, boyfriend, husband, you know, dog. Get them a copy of Volume 2. That would be fantastic. So next up is the main fiction. And it comes from Clifford D. Simak. The story is entitled The World That Couldn't Be. And I put this, you know, if everyone's not following on Twitter, you know, please come over and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. They're all kind of interlinked now. I've got them all working interlinked. And I put up, you know, what's coming on. Little things in there, you know what I mean? What What's happened with my life as well. But I put up a little saying, we'll have a Clifford D. Simak story coming up in t- tomorrow's show. And loads of little replies, you know, great, love, love Clifford D. Simak. So I'm quite... I'm quite surprised, you know, like you say, an, an old-timer from, you know, the kind of the past generations are still, you know, and not one of the kind of the top, top, you know, like you say, the, the top three, you know, the Asimov, Clarks and Heinleins, but, you know, still there and still popular. So I'm really pleased that, that we can bring this story. If anyone doesn't know, Clifford Donald Simak. Now, do you know my brain, I cannot remember, but I'm sure we did. I'm sure I covered him in one of the kind of original shows. And look out for some news about the original shows, but I'm, I'm sure I did cover the guy. But if anyone doesn't know, he was born in August 1904 and died in April 1988. He was American science fiction writer. He was honoured by fans. I'm just reading straight from good old Wikipedia here. He was honoured by fans with three Hugo Awards and by colleagues with one Nebula Award. And he was the third grandmaster of the science fiction fantasies of America in 1977. He was born in Millville, Wisconsin. Is that <laughs> and he was son of John Lewis and Ma- Margaret Wiseman. Simic became interested in science fiction after reading the works of H.G. Wells as a child. He started writing for science fiction pulp magazines in 1931, but dropped out of the field by 1933. The only science fiction piece that he published between 33 and 37 was The Creator. Marvel Tales, which was in 1935. A notable story with religious implications, which was the first in a rarity in a genre of science fiction. Now, it's only since, you know, when John W. Campbell began redefining the field in the late, late 1937, this was like the golden age, that Simak returned to science fiction and was a regular contributor to astounding stories, you know, throughout this golden age of science fiction, which... You should know by now, 1938, 1950. But the the critics out there say his best-known novel may have been City, a collection of short stories with a a common theme running running right through it about mankind's eventual exodus from Earth. You know, so if you haven't, you know, come across Clifford D. Simak, please do check him out. Do you know what I mean? He's a fine writer. This story is narrated by Matt Cowens. Matt Cowens himself does a little bit of writing there and a fantastic narrator as well. You can find him over at his short fiction at Everyday Fiction as well. So, a great Matt, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll get Matt to narrate some more stories for the good Starship Sofa. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. The World That Couldn't Be 
by Clifford D. Simic. The tracks went up one row and down another, and in those rows the vua plants had been sheared off an inch or two above the ground. The raider had been methodical. It had not wandered about haphazardly, but had done an efficient job of harvesting the first ten rows on the west side of the field. Then, having eaten its fill, it had angled off into the bush, and that had not been long ago, for the soil still trickled down into the great pug marks, sunk deep into the finely cultivated loam. Somewhere a sawmill bird was whirring through a log, and down in one of the thorn-choked ravines a choir of chatterers was clicking through a ghastly morning song. It was going to be a scorcher of a day. Already the smell of desiccated dusk was rising from the ground, and the glare of the newly risen sun was dancing off the bright leaves of the hula trees, making it appear as if the bush were filled with a million flashing mirrors. Gavin Duncan hauled a red bandana from his pocket and mopped his face. "'No, mister!' pleaded Zakara, the native foreman of the farm. "'You cannot do it, mister. You do not hunt a scyther.' "'No, the hell I don't,' said Duncan, but he spoke in English and not the native tongue. He stared out across the bush, a flat expanse of sun-cured grass interspersed with thickets of hula scrub and thorn and occasional groves of trees, crisscrossed by treacherous ravines and spotted with infrequent waterholes. It would be murderous out there, he told himself, but it shouldn't take too long. The beast probably would lay up shortly after its pre-dawn feeding, and he'd overhaul it in an hour or two. But if he failed to overhaul it, then he must keep on. Dangerous, Zakara pointed out. No one hunts for the scyther. I do, Duncan said, speaking now in the native language. I hunt anything that damages my crop. A few nights more of this and there would be nothing left. Jamming the bandana back into his pocket, he tilted his hat lower across his eyes against the sun. It might be a long chase, mister. It is the scun season now. If you were caught out there... Now listen, Duncan told it sharply. Before I came, you'd feast one day, then starve for days on end. But now you eat each day... And you like the doctoring. Before, when you got sick, you died. Now you get sick, I doctor you and you live. You like staying in one place instead of wandering all around? Mister, we like all this, said Zakara. But we do not hunt the scyther. If we do not hunt the scyther, we lose all this, Duncan pointed out. If I don't make a crop, I'm licked. I'll have to go away. Then what happens to you? We will grow the corn ourselves. That's a laugh, said Duncan, and you know it is. If I didn't kick your backsides all day long, you wouldn't do a lick of work. If I leave, you go back to the bush. Now let's go and get that scyther. But it is such a little one, mister. It is such a young one. It is scarcely worth the trouble. It would be a shame to kill it. Probably just slightly smaller than a horse, thought Duncan, watching the native closely. It's scared, he told himself. It's scared dry and spitless. Besides, it must have been most hungry. Surely, mister, even a scyther has the right to eat. Not from my crop, said Duncan savagely. You know why we grow the vua, don't you? You know it is great medicine. The berries that it grows cures those who are sick inside their heads. My people need that medicine, need it very badly. And what is more, out there, he swept his arm towards the sky, out there they pay very much for it. But, mister... I tell you this, said Duncan gently. You either dig me up a bush runner to do the tracking for me, or you can all get out. The kitten caboodle of you. I can get other tribes to work the farm. No, mister, Zakara screamed in desperation. You have your choice, Duncan told it coldly. He plodded back across the field toward the house. Not much of a house as yet, not a great deal better than a native shack, but some day it would be, he told himself. 
Let him sell a crop or two, and he'd build a house that would really be a house. It would have a bar and a swimming pool and a garden filled with flowers. And at last, after years of wandering, he'd have a home and broad acres, and everyone, not just one lousy tribe, would call him Mr. Gavin Duncan, planter, he said to himself, and liked the sound of it. Planter on the planet Layard. But not if a scyther came back night after night and ate the Vua plants. He glanced over his shoulder and saw that Zakara was racing for the native village. Called their bluff, Duncan informed himself with satisfaction. He came out of the field and walked across the yard, heading for the house. One of Shotwell's shirts was hanging on the clothesline, limp in the breathless morning. Damn the man, thought Duncan. Out here mucking around with those stupid natives, always asking questions, always underfoot. Although, to be fair about it, that was Shotwell's job. That was what the sociology people had sent him out to do. Duncan came up to the shack, pushed the door open, and entered. Shotwell, stripped to the waist, was at the wash bench. Breakfast was cooking on the stove, with an elderly native acting as cook. Duncan strode across the room and took down the heavy rifle from its peg. He slapped the action open, slapped it shut again. Shotwell reached for a towel. Oh, what's going on? he asked. Scyther got into the field. Scyther? A kind of animal, said Duncan. It ate ten rows of vua. Big, little? What are its characteristics? The native began putting breakfast on the table. Duncan walked to the table, laid the rifle across one corner of it, and sat down. He poured a brackish liquid out of a big stew pan into their cups. God, he thought, what I would give for a cup of coffee. Shotwell pulled up his chair. You didn't answer me. What's the scyther like? I wouldn't know, said Duncan. Don't know, but you're going after it, looks like. And how can you hunt it if you don't know? Track it. The thing tied to the other end of the trail is sure to be the scyther. We'll find out what it's like once we catch up to it. We? The natives will send someone to do the tracking for me. Some of them are better than a dog. Look, Gavin, I've put you to a lot of trouble, and you've been decent with me. If I can be any help, I'd like to go. Two make better time than three, and we have to catch this scyther fast, or it might settle down to an endurance contest. Oh, all right, then. Uh, tell me about the scyther. Duncan poured porridge gruel into his bowl, handed the pan to Shotwell. It's a sort of special thing. The natives are scared to death of it. You hear a lot of stories about it, said to be unkillable. It's always capitalised, always a proper noun. It has been reported at different times from widely scattered places. No one's ever bagged one? Well, not that I heard of. Duncan patted the rifle. Let me get a bead on it. He started eating, spooning the porridge into his mouth, munching on the stale cornbread left from the night before. He drank some of the brackish beverage and shuddered. Some day, he said, I'm going to scrape together enough money to buy a pound of coffee. You'd think, it's the freight rates, Shotwell said. I'll send you a pound when I go back. Not at the price they'd charge to ship it out, said Duncan. I wouldn't hear of it. They ate in silence for a time. Finally, Shotwell said, I'm getting nowhere, Gavin. The natives are willing to talk, but it all adds up to nothing. I tried to tell you that. You could have saved your time. Shotwell shook his head stubbornly. There is an answer, a logical explanation. It's easy enough to say you cannot rule out the sexual factor, but that's exactly what has happened here on Layard. It's easy to exclaim that a sexless animal, a sexless race, a sexless planet is impossible, but that is what we have. Somewhere there is an answer, and I have to find it. Now, hold up a minute, Duncan protested. There's no use blowing a gasket. I haven't got the time this morning to listen to your lecture. But it's not the lack of sex that worries me entirely. Shotwell said, although it's the central factor. 
there are subsidiary situations deriving from that central fact which are most intriguing. I have no doubt of it, said Duncan, but if you please... Without sex, there is no basis for the family, and without the family, there is no basis for a tribe, and yet the natives have an elaborate tribal set-up, with taboos by way of regulation. Somewhere there must exist some underlying, basic, unifying factor, some common loyalty, some strange relationship which spells out to brotherhood. Not brotherhood, said Duncan, chuckling. Not even sisterhood. You must watch your terminology. The word you want is it-hood. The door pushed open and a native walked in timidly. Zikara said that Mr. wants me, the native told them. I am Sipar. I can track anything but screamers, stilt birds, longhorns, and donovans. Those are my taboos. Ah, I'm glad to hear that, Duncan replied. You have no scyther taboo, then. Scyther, yipped the native. Zikara did not tell me scyther. Duncan paid no attention. He got up from the table and went to the heavy chest that stood against one wall. He rummaged in it and came out with a pair of binoculars, a hunting knife, and an extra drum of ammunition. At the kitchen cupboard he rummaged once again, filling a small leather sack with a gritty powder from a can he found. Rockahominy, he explained to Shotwell. Emergency rations thought up by the primitive North American Indians. Parched corn ground fine. It's no feast exactly, but it keeps a man going. You figure you'll be gone that long? Uh, maybe overnight, I don't know. Won't stop until I get it. Can't afford to. It could wipe me out in a few days. Well, good hunting, Shotwell said. I'll hold the fort. Duncan said to Sipar, Quit snivelling and come on. He picked up the rifle, settled it in the crook of his arm. He kicked open the door and strode out. Sipar followed meekly. Part 2 Duncan got his first shot late in the afternoon of that first day. In the middle of the morning, two hours after they had left the farm, they had flushed the scyther out of its bed in a thick ravine. But there had been no chance for a shot. Duncan saw no more than a huge black blur fade into the bush. Through the bake-oven afternoon they had followed its trail. Sipar tracking and Duncan bringing up the rear, scanning every piece of cover, with the sun-hot rifle always held at ready. Once they had been held up for fifteen minutes while a massive Donovan tramped back and forth, screaming, trying to work up its courage for attack. But after a quarter of an hour of showing off, it decided to behave itself and went off at a shuffling gallop. Duncan watched it go with a lot of thankfulness. It could soak up a lot of lead, and for all its awkwardness, it was handy with its feet once it set itself in motion. Donovans had killed a lot of men in the twenty years since Earthmen had come to Layard. With the beast gone, Duncan looked around for Sipar. He found it fast asleep beneath a hula shrub. He kicked the native awake with something less than gentleness, and they went on again. The bush swarmed with other animals, but they had no trouble with them. Sipa, despite its initial reluctance, had worked well at the trailing. A misplaced bunch of grass, a twig bent to one side, a displaced stone, the faintest pug mark were Sipa's stock in trade. It worked like a lithe, well-trained hound. The bush country was its special province. Here it was at home. With the sun dropping toward the west, they had climbed a long, steep hill, and as they neared the top of it, Duncan hissed at Sipa. The native looked back over its shoulder in surprise. Duncan made motions for it to stop tracking. The native crouched, and as Duncan went past it, he saw that a look of agony was twisting its face. And in the look of agony, he thought he saw as well a touch of pleading and a trace of hatred. It's scared, just like the rest of them, Duncan told himself. But what the native thought or felt had no significance. What counted was the beast ahead. Duncan went the last few yards on his belly, pushing the gun ahead of him, the binoculars bumping on his back. 
Swift, vicious insects ran out of the grass and swarmed across his hands and arms, and one got on his face and bit him. He made it to the hilltop and lay there, looking at the sweep of land beyond. It was more of the same, more of the blistering, dusty slogging, more of thorn and tangled ravine and awful emptiness. He lay motionless, waiting for a hint of motion, for the fitful shadow, for any wrongness in the terrain that might be this either. But there was nothing. The land lay quiet under the declining sun. Far on the horizon a herd of some sort of animals was grazing, but there was nothing else. Then he saw the motion, just a flicker on the knoll ahead, about halfway up. He laid the rifle carefully on the ground and hitched the binoculars around. He raised them to his eyes and moved them slowly back and forth. The animal was there where he had seen the motion. It was resting, looking back along the way it had come, watching for the first sign of its trailers. Duncan tried to make out the size and shape, but it blended with the grass and the dun soil, and he could not be sure exactly what it looked like. He let the glasses down, and now that he had located it, he could distinguish its outline with the naked eye. His hand reached out and slid the rifle to him. He fitted it to his shoulder and wriggled his body for closer contact with the ground. The crosshairs centred on the faint outline on the knoll, and then the beast stood up. It was not as large as he had thought it might be, perhaps a little larger than earth lion size, but it certainly was no lion. It was a square-set thing, and black and inclined to lumpiness, and it had an awkward look about it, but there were strength and ferociousness as well. Duncan tilted the muzzle of the rifle so that the crosshairs centred on the massive neck. He drew in a breath and held it, and began the trigger squeeze. The rifle bucked hard against his shoulder, and the report hammered in his head, and the beast went down. It did not lurch or fall, it simply melted down and disappeared, hidden in the grass. Dead centre, Duncan assured himself. He worked the mechanism, and the spent cartridge case flew out. The feeding mechanism snicked, and the fresh shell clicked as it slid into the breech. He lay for a moment, watching, and on the knoll where the thing had fallen, the grass was twitching as if the wind were blowing, only there was no wind. But despite the twitching of the grass, there was no sign of the scyther. It did not struggle up again. It stayed where it had fallen. Duncan got to his feet, dug out the bandana, and mopped at his face. He heard the soft thud of the step behind him and turned his head. It was the tracker. "'It's all right, Sipar,' he said. "'You can quit worrying. I got it. We can go home now.' It had been a long, hard chase, longer than he had thought it might be. But it had been successful, and that was the thing that counted. For the moment, the vua crop was safe. He tucked the bandana back into his pocket, went down the slope, and started up the knoll. He reached the place where the scyther had fallen. There were three small gouts of torn, mangled fur and flesh lying on the ground, and there was nothing else. He spun around and jerked his rifle up. Every nerve was screaming alert. He swung his head, searching for the slightest movement, for some shape or colour that was not the shape or colour of the bush or grass or ground. But there was nothing. The heat droned in the hush of afternoon. There was not a breath of moving air, but there was danger, a saw-toothed sense of danger close behind his neck. Ziba, he called in a tense whisper. Watch out! The native stood motionless, unheeding, its eyeballs rolling up until there was only white, while the muscles stood out along its throat like straining ropes of steel. Duncan slowly swivelled, rifle held almost at arm's length, elbows crooked a little, ready to bring the weapon into play in a fraction of a second. Nothing stirred. There was no more than emptiness, the emptiness of sun and molten sky, of grass and scraggy bush, of a brown and yellow land stretching into foreverness. 
Step by step, Duncan covered the hillside and finally came back to the place where the native squatted on its heels and moaned, rocking back and forth, arms locked tightly across its chest, as if it tried to cradle itself in a sort of illusory comfort. The earthman walked to the place where the scyther had fallen and picked up, one by one, the bits of bleeding flesh. They had been mangled by his bullet. They were limp and had no shape. And it was queer, he thought. In all his years of hunting over many planets, he had never known a bullet to rip out hunks of flesh. He dropped the bloody pieces back into the grass and wiped his hand upon his thighs. He got up a little stiffly. He'd found no trail of blood leading through the grass, and surely an animal with a hole of that size would leave a trail. And as he stood there upon the hillside, with the bloody fingerprint still wet and glistening upon the fabric of his trousers, he felt the first cold touch of fear, as if the fingertips of fear might momentarily almost casually, have trailed across his heart. He turned around and walked back to the native, reached down and shook it. Snap out of it, he ordered. He expected pleading, cowering, terror, but there was none. Sipar got swiftly to its feet and stood looking at him, and there was, he thought, an odd glitter in its eyes. Get going, Duncan said. We still have a little time. Start circling and pick up the trail. I will cover you. He glanced at the sun. An hour and a half still left maybe as much as two. There might still be time to get this buttoned up before the fall of night. A half a mile beyond the knoll, Sipar picked up the trail again and they went ahead, but now they travelled more cautiously, for any bush, any rock, any clump of grass might conceal the wounded beast. Duncan found himself on edge and cursed himself savagely for it. He'd been in tight spots before. This was nothing new to him. There was no reason to get himself tensed up. It was a deadly business, sure, but he had faced others calmly and walked away from them. It was those frontier tales he'd heard about the scyther, the kind of superstitious chatter that one always heard on the edge of unknown land. He gripped the rifle tighter and went on. No animal, he told himself, was unkillable. Half an hour before sunset, he called a halt when they reached a brackish waterhole. The light soon would be getting bad for shooting. In the morning they'd take up the trail again, and by that time the scyther would be at an even greater disadvantage. It would be stiff and slow and weak. It might even be dead. Duncan gathered wood and built a fire in the lee of a thornbush thicket. Sipar waded out with canteens and thrust them at arm's length beneath the surface to fill them. The water still was warm and evil-tasting, but it was fairly free of scum and a thirsty man could drink it. The sun went down and darkness fell quickly. They dragged more wood out of the thicket and piled it carefully close at hand. Duncan reached into his pocket and brought out the little bag of rockahominy. The native held one hand cupped, and Duncan poured a little mound into its palm. Thank you, mister, Sipa said. Food giver. Huh? asked Duncan, then caught what the native meant. Dive into it, he said, almost kindly. It isn't much, but it gives you strength. We'll need strength tomorrow. Food giver, eh? trying to butter him up, perhaps. In a little while, Sipar would start whining for him to knock off the hunt and head back for the farm. Although, come to think of it, he really was the food-giver to this bunch of sexless wonders. Corn, thank God, grew well on the red and stubborn soil of Layard. Good old corn from North America. Fed to hogs, made into corn pone for breakfast back on Earth, and here on Layard, the staple food crop for a gang of shiftless varmints who still regarded, with some good solid scepticism and round-eyed wonder, this unorthodox idea that one should take the trouble to grow plants to eat, rather than go out and scrounge for them. Corn from North America, he thought, growing side by side with the vua of Layard. And that was the way it went. 
something from one planet and something from another, and still something further from a third, and so was built up through the wide social confederacy of space a truly cosmic culture, which in the end, in another 10,000 years or so, might spell out some way of life with more sanity and understanding than was evident today. He poured a mound of rockahominy into his own hand and put the bag back into his pocket. Sipa, Yes, mister? You were not scared today when the Donovan threatened to attack us. No, mister. The Donovan would not hurt me. I see. You said the Donovan was taboo to you. Could it be that you likewise are taboo to the Donovan? Yes, mister. The Donovan and I grew up together. Ah, so that's it, said Duncan. He put a pen... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Each of the parched and powdered corn into his mouth and took a sip of brackish water. He chewed reflectively on the resultant mash. He might go ahead, he knew, and ask why and how and where Sipar and the Donovan had grown up together, but there was no point to it. This was exactly the kind of tangle that Shotwell was forever getting into. Half the time, he told himself, I'm convinced the little stinkers are doing no more than pulling our legs. What a fantastic bunch of jerks. Not men, not women, just things. And while there were never babies, there were children, although never less than eight or nine years old. And if there were no babies, where did the eight and nine-year-olds come from? I suppose, he said, that these other things that are your taboos, the stilt birds and the screamers and the like, also grew up with you. That is right, mister. (laughs) Some playground that must have been said Duncan. He went on chewing, staring out into the darkness beyond the ring of firelight. There's something in the thornbush, mister. I didn't hear a thing. Little pattering. Something is running there. Duncan listened closely. 
what Sipar said was true. A lot of little things were running in the thicket. More than likely mice, he said. He finished his rocker hominy and took an extra swig of water, gagging on it slightly. Get your rest, he told Sipar. I'll wake you later so I can catch a wink or two. Mister, Sipar said, I will stay with you to the end. Well, said Duncan, somewhat startled, that is decent of you. I will stay to the death, Sipar promised earnestly. Don't strain yourself, said Duncan. He picked up the rifle and walked down to the waterhole. The night was quiet and the land continued to have that empty feeling. Empty except for the fire and the waterhole and the little mice-like animals running in the thicket. And Sipar, Sipar lying by the fire, curled up and sound asleep already. Naked, with not a weapon to its hand, just the naked animal, the basic humanoid, and yet with underlying purpose that at times was baffling. Scared and shivering this morning at mere mention of the scyther, yet never faltering on the trail, in pure funk back there on the knoll where they had lost the scyther, but now ready to go on to the death. Duncan went back to the fire and prodded Sipar with his toe. The native came straight up out of sleep. "'Whose death?' asked Duncan. "'Whose death were you talking of?' "'Why, ours, of course,' said Sipar, and went back to sleep. Part 3 Duncan did not see the arrow coming. He heard the swishing whistle and felt the wind of it on the right side of his throat, and then it thunked into a tree behind him. He leaped aside and dived for cover of a tumbled mound of boulders, and almost instinctively his thumb pushed the fire control of the rifle up to automatic. He crouched behind the jumbled rocks and peered ahead. There was not a thing to see. The hula trees shimmered in the blaze of sun, and the thorn bush was grey and lifeless, and the only things astir were three stilt birds walking gravely a quarter of a mile away. Ziba, he whispered. Here, mister. Keep low. It's still out there. Whatever it might be. Still out there and waiting for another shot. Duncan shivered, remembering the feel of the arrow flying past his throat. A hell of a way for a man to die. Out at the tail end of nowhere with an arrow in his throat and a scared stiff native heading back for home as fast as it could go. He flicked the control on the rifle back to single fire, crawled around the rock pile and sprinted for a grove of trees that stood on higher ground. He reached them and there he flanked the spot from which the arrow must have come. He unlimbered the binoculars and glassed the area. He still saw no sign. Whatever had taken the pot shot at them had made its getaway. He walked back to the tree where the arrow still stood, its point driven deep into the bark. He grasped the shaft and wrenched the arrow free. You can come out now, he called to Sipa. There's no one around. The arrow was unbelievably crude. The unfeathered shaft looked as if it had been battered off to the proper length with jagged stone. The arrowhead was unflaked flint, picked up from some outcropping or dry creek bed, and it was awkwardly bound to the shaft with the tough but pliant inner bark of the hula tree. You recognise this? he asked Sipa. The native took the arrow and examined it. Not my tribe. Of course not your tribe. Yours wouldn't take a shot at us. Some other tribe, perhaps. Very poor arrow. I know that, but it could kill you just as dead as if it were a good one. Do you recognise it? No tribe made this arrow, Sipa declared. Child, maybe? What would child do way out here? That's what I thought, too, said Duncan. He took the arrow back, held it between his thumbs and forefingers, and twirled it slowly, with a terrifying thought nibbling at his brain. It couldn't be. It was too fantastic. He wondered if the sun was finally getting him that he had thought of it at all. He squatted down and dug at the ground with the makeshift arrow point. Sipa, what do you actually know about the scyther? Nothing, mister. Scared of it is all. We aren't turning back. If there's something you know, something that would help us. 
It was as close as he could have come to begging aid. It was further than he had meant to go. He should not have asked at all, he thought angrily. I do not know, the native said. Duncan cast the arrow to one side and rose to his feet. He cradled the rifle in his arm. Let's go. He watched Sipar trot ahead. Crafty little stinker, he told himself. It knows more than it's telling. They toiled into the afternoon. It was, if possible, hotter and drier than the day before. There was a sense of tension in the air. No, that was rot. And even if there were, a man must act as if it were not there. If he let himself fall prey to every mood out in this empty land, he only had himself to blame for whatever happened to him. The tracking was harder now. The day before, the Scyther had only run away, straight line fleeing to keep ahead of them, to stay out of their reach. Now it was becoming tricky. It backtracked often in an attempt to throw them off. Twice in the afternoon the trail blanked out entirely, and it was only after long searching that Sipar picked it up again, in one instance a mile away from where it had vanished into thin air. That vanishing bothered Duncan more than he would admit. Trails do not disappear entirely, not when the terrain remains the same, not when the weather is unchanged. Something was going on, something perhaps that Sipar knew far more about than it was willing to divulge. He watched the native closely, and there seemed nothing suspicious. It continued at its work. It was, for all to see, the good and faithful hound. Late in the afternoon, the plane on which they had been travelling suddenly dropped away. They stood poised on the brink of a great escarpment, and looked far out to great tangled forests and a flowing river. It was like suddenly coming into another and beautiful room that one had not expected. This was new land, never seen before by any earthman, for no one had ever mentioned that somewhere to the west a forest lay beyond the bush. Men coming in from space had seen it, probably, but only as a different colour marking on the planet. To them it made no difference. But to the men who lived on Layard, to the planter and the trader, the prospector and the hunter, it was important. And I, thought Duncan with a sense of triumph, and the man who found it. Mister! Now what? Out there! Skun! I don't... Out there, mister! Across the river! Duncan saw it then, a haze in the blueness of the rift, a puff of copper moving very fast, and as he watched, he heard the far-off keening of the storm, a shiver in the air rather than a sound. He watched in fascination as it moved along the river, and saw the boiling fury it made out of the forest. It struck and crossed the river, and the river for a moment seemed to stand on end, with a sheet of silvery water splashed toward the sky. Then it was gone as quickly as it had happened, but there was a tumbled slash across the forest where the churning winds had travelled. Back at the farm, Zakara had warned him of the schoon. This was the season for them, it had said, and a man caught in one wouldn't have a chance. Duncan let his breath out slowly. Bad, said Sipa. Yes, very bad. Hit fast, no warning. What about the trail? asked Duncan. Did the scyther? Sipa nodded downward. Can we make it before nightfall? I think so. Sipa answered. It was rougher than they had thought. Twice they went down blind trails that pinched off with sheer rock faces opening out into drops of hundreds of feet and were forced to climb again and find another way. They reached the bottom of the escarpment as the brief twilight closed in and they hurried to gather firewood. There was no water, but a little was still left in their canteens and they made do with that. After this scant meal of rockahominy, Sipa rolled himself into a ball and went to sleep immediately. Duncan sat with his back against a boulder which one day, long ago, had fallen from the slope above them, but was now half buried in the soil that through the ages had kept sifting down. Two days gone, he told himself. 
Was there, after all, some truth in the whispered tales that made the rounds back at the settlements, that no one should waste his time in tracking down a scyther, since a scyther was unkillable? Nonsense, he told himself. And yet the hunt had toughened, the trail become more difficult, the scyther a much more cunning and elusive quarry. Where it had run from them the day before, now it fought to shake them off. And if it did that the second day, why had it not tried to throw them off the first? And what about the third day, tomorrow? He shook his head. It seemed incredible that an animal would become more formidable as the hunt progressed. But that seemed to be exactly what had happened. More spooked, perhaps, more frightened. Only the scyther did not act like a frightened beast. It was acting like an animal that was gaining savvy and determination, and that was somehow frightening. Far off to the west, toward the forest and the river, came the laughter and the howling of a pack of screamers. Duncan leaned his rifle against the boulder and got up to pile more wood on the fire. He stared out into the western darkness, listening to the racket. He made a wry face and pushed a hand absent-mindedly through his hair. He put out a silent hope that the screamers would decide to keep their distance. They were something a man could do without. Behind him, a pebble came bumping down the slope. It thudded to a rest just short of the fire. Duncan spun around. Foolish thing to do, he thought, to camp so near the slope. If something big should start to move, they'd be out of luck. He stood and listened. The night was quiet. Even the screamers had shut up for the moment. Just one rolling rock and he had his hackles up. He'd have to get himself in hand. He went back to the boulder, and as he stooped to pick up the rifle, he heard the faint beginnings of a rumble. He straightened swiftly to face the scarp that blotted out the star-strewn sky, and the rumble grew. In one leap, he was at Sipar's side. He reached down and grasped the native by an arm, jerked it erect, held it on its feet. Sipar's eyes snapped open, blinking in the firelight. The rumble had grown to a roar, and there were thumping noises as of heavy boulders bouncing, and beneath the roar the silky, ominous rustle of sliding soil and rock. Sipar jerked its arm free of Duncan's grip and plunged into the darkness. Duncan whirled and followed. They ran, stumbling in the dark, and behind them the roar of the sliding, bouncing rock became a throaty roll of thunder that filled the night from brim to brim. As he ran, Duncan could feel in dread anticipation the gusty breath of hurtling debris blowing on his neck, the crushing impact of a boulder smashing into him, the engulfing flood of tumbling talus snatching at his legs. A puff of billowing dust came out and caught them as they ran, choking as well as stumbling. Off to the left of them, a mighty chunk of rock chugged along the ground in jerky, almost reluctant fashion. Then the thunder stopped, and all one could hear was the small slitherings of lesser debris as it trickled down the slope. Duncan stopped running and slowly turned around. The campfire was gone, buried, no doubt, beneath tons of overlay, and the stars had paled because of the great cloud of dust which still billowed up into the sky. He heard Sipar moving near him and reached out a hand, searching for the tracker, not knowing exactly where it was. He found the native, grasped it by the shoulder and pulled it up beside him. Sipar was shivering. "'It's all right,' said Duncan. And it was all right, he reassured himself. He still had the rifle. The extra drum of ammunition and the knife were on his belt, the bag of rockahominy in his pocket. The canteens were all they had lost, the canteens and the fire. "'We'll have to hold up somewhere for the night,' Duncan said. "'There are screamers on the loose.' He didn't like what he was thinking, nor the sharp edge of fear that was beginning to crowd in upon him. He tried to shrug it off, but it still stayed with him, just out of reach. Sipar plucked at his elbow. Thorn thicket, mister, over there. We could crawl inside. We would be safe from the screamers. It was torture, but they made it. The screamers and you are taboo, 
said Duncan, suddenly remembering. How come you're afraid of them? Afraid for you, mister, mostly. Afraid for myself just a little. Screamers could forget. They might not recognize me until too late. Safer here. I agree with you, said Duncan. The screamers came and padded all about the thicket. The beasts sniffed and clawed at the thorns to reach them, but finally went away. When morning came, Duncan and Sipar climbed the scarp, clambering over the boulders and the tons of soil and rock that covered their camping place. Following the gash cut by the slide, they clambered up the slope and finally reached the point of the slide's beginning. There they found the depression in which the poised slab of rock had rested, and where the supporting soil had been dug away so that it could be started with a push down the slope above the campfire. And all about were the deeply sunken pug marks of the scyther. Part 4 now it was more than just a hunt. It was knife against the throat, kill or be killed. Now there was no stopping, when before there might have been. It was no longer sport, and there was no mercy. And that's the way I like it, Duncan told himself. He rubbed his hand along the rifle barrel, and saw the metallic glints shine in the noonday sun. One more shot, he prayed. Just give me one more shot at it. This time there will be no slip-up. This time there will be more than three sodden hunks of flesh and fur lying in the grass to mock me. He squinted his eyes against the heat shimmer rising from the river, watching Sipa hunkered beside the water's edge. The native rose to its feet and trotted back to him. It crossed, said Sipa. It walked out as far as it could go, and it must have swum. Are you sure? It might have waited out to make us think it crossed, then doubled back again. He stared at the purple-green of the trees across the river. Inside that forest, it would be hellish going. We can look, said Sipar. Good. You go downstream. I'll go up. An hour later, they were back. They had found no tracks. There seemed little doubt that the scyther really had crossed the river. They stood side by side, looking at the forest. Mister, we have come far. You are brave to hunt the scyther. You have no fear of death. The fear of death, Duncan said, is entirely infantile. And it's beside the point as well. I do not intend to die. They waded out into the stream. The bottom shelved gradually, and they had to swim no more than a hundred yards or so. They reached the forest bank and threw themselves flat to rest. Duncan looked back the way they had come. To the east, the escarpment was a dark blue smudge against the pale blue burnished sky. And two days back of that lay the farm and the vua field, but they seemed much farther off than that. They were lost in time and distance. They belonged to another existence and another world. All his life, it seemed to him, had faded and become inconsequential and forgotten, as if this moment in his life were the only one that counted, as if all the minutes and the hours, all the breaths and heartbeats, wake and sleep, had pointed towards this certain hour upon this stream, with the rifle moulded to his hand and the cool, calculated bloodlust of a killer riding in his brain. Sipar finally got up and began to range along the stream. Duncan sat up and watched. Scared to death, he thought, and yet it stayed with me. At the campfire that first night, it had said it would stick to the death, and apparently it had meant exactly what it said. It's hard, he thought, to figure out these jokers. Hard to know what kind of mental operation, what seethings of emotion, what brand of ethics and what variety of belief and faith go to make them and their way of life. It would have been so easy for Sipar to have missed the trail and swear it could not find it. Even from the start it could have refused to go, yet, fearing, it had gone. Reluctant, it had trailed. Without any need for faithfulness and loyalty, it had been loyal and faithful. 
But loyal to what? Duncan wondered. To him, the outlander and an intruder? Loyal to itself? Or perhaps, although that seemed impossible, faithful to the scyther? What does Sipar think of me? he asked himself, and maybe more to the point. What do I think of Sipar? Is there a common meeting ground? Or are we, despite our humanoid forms, condemned forever to be alien and apart? He held the rifle across his knees and stroked it, polishing it, petting it, making it even more closely a part of him, an instrument of his deadliness, an expression of his determination to trace and kill the scyther. Just another chance, he begged, just one second or even less to draw a steady bead. That is all I want, all I need, all I'll ask. Then he could go back across the days that he had left behind him, back to the farm and field, back into that misty other life from which he had been so mysteriously divorced, but which in time undoubtedly would become real and meaningful again. Sipar came back. I found the trail. Duncan heaved himself to his feet. Good. They left the river and plunged into the forest, and there the heat closed in more mercilessly than ever. Humid, stifling heat, it felt like a soggy blanket wrapped tightly round the body. The trail lay plain and clear. The scyther now, it seemed, was intent upon piling up a lead without recourse to evasive tactics. Perhaps it had reasoned that its pursuers would lose some time at the river, and it may have been trying to stretch out that margin even further. Perhaps it needed that extra time, he speculated, to set up the necessary machinery for another dirty trick. Sipar stopped and waited for Duncan to catch up. "'Your knife, mister?' Duncan hesitated. What for? I have a thorn in my foot, the native said. I have to get it out. Duncan pulled the knife from his belt and tossed it. Sipar caught it deftly. Looking straight at Duncan, with the flicker of a smile upon its lips, the native cut its throat. Part 5 He should go back, he knew. Without the tracker, he didn't have a chance. The odds were now with the scyther, if indeed they had not been with it from the very start. Unkillable. Unkillable because it grew in intelligence to meet emergencies. Unkillable because, pressed, it could fashion a bow and arrow, however crude. Unkillable because it had a sense of tactics, like rolling rocks at night upon its enemy. Unkillable because a native tracker would cheerfully kill itself to protect the scyther. A sort of crisis beast, perhaps. One able to develop intelligence and abilities to meet each new situation and then lapsing back to the level of non-intelligent contentment. That, thought Duncan, would be a sensible way for anything to live. It would do away with the inconvenience and irritability and the discontentment of intelligence when intelligence was unneeded. But the intelligence and the abilities which went with it would be there, safely tucked away where one could reach in and get them like a necklace or a gun, something to be used or to be put away as the case might be. Duncan hunched forward and, with a stick of wood, pushed the fire together. The flames blazed up anew and sent sparks flying up into the whispering darkness of the trees. The night had cooled off a little, but the humidity still hung on and a man felt uncomfortable, a little frightened, too. Duncan lifted his head and stared up into the fire-flecked darkness. There were no stars because the heavy foliage shut them out. He missed the stars. He'd feel better if he could look up and see them. When morning came, he should go back. He should quit this hunt, which now had become impossible and even slightly foolish. But he knew he wouldn't. Somewhere along the three-day trail, he had become committed to a purpose and a challenge, and he knew that when morning came, he would go on again. It was not hatred that drove him, nor vengeance, nor even the trophy urge. 
The hunter lust that prodded men to kill something stranger or harder to kill or bigger than any man had ever killed before. It was something more than that, some weird entangling of the scyther's meaning with his own. He reached out and picked up the rifle and laid it in his lap. Its barrel gleamed dully in the flickering campfire light, and he rubbed his hand along the stock as another man might stroke a woman's throat. Mister, said a voice. It did not startle him, for the word was softly spoken, and for a moment he had forgotten that Sipa was dead, dead with a half-smile fixed upon its face and with its throat laid wide open. Mister? Duncan stiffened. Sipa was dead and there was no one else, and yet someone had spoken to him, and there could be only one thing in all this wilderness that might speak to him. Yes, he said. He did not move. He simply sat there with the rifle in his lap. You know who I am? I suppose you are the scyther. You have done well, the scyther said. You've made a splendid hunt. There is no dishonour if you should decide to quit. Why don't you go back? I promise you no harm. It was over there, somewhere in front of him, somewhere in the brush beyond the fire, almost straight across the fire from him, Duncan told himself. If he could keep it talking, perhaps even lure it out. Why should I? he asked. The hunt is never done until one gets the thing one is after. I can kill you, the scyther told him, but I do not want to kill. It hurts to kill. That's right, said Duncan. You are most perceptive. For he had it pegged now. He knew exactly where it was. He could afford a little mockery. His thumb slid up the metal and nudged the fire control to automatic, and he flexed his legs beneath him so that he could rise and fire in one single motion. Why did you hunt me? the scyther asked. You are a stranger on my world, and you had no right to hunt me. Not that I mind, of course. In fact, I found it stimulating. We must do it again. When I am ready to be hunted, I shall come and tell you, and we can spend a day or two at it. Sure we can, said Duncan, rising. And as he rose into his crouch, he held the trigger down, and the gun danced in insane fury, the muzzle flare a flicking tongue of hatred, and the hail of death hissing spitefully in the underbrush. Any time you want to yelled Duncan gleefully. I'll come and hunt you. You just say the word and I'll be on your tail. I might even kill you. How'd you like it, chump? And he held the trigger tight and kept his crouch so the slugs would not fly high, but would cut their swathes just above the ground, and he moved the muzzle back and forth a lot so that he covered extra ground to compensate for any miscalculations he might have made. The magazine ran out, and the gun clicked empty and the vicious chatter stopped. Powder smoke drifted softly in the campfire light, and the smell of it was perfume in the nostrils, and in the underbrush many little feet were running, as if a thousand frightened mice were scurrying from the catastrophe. Duncan unhooked the extra magazine from where it hung upon his belt and replaced the empty one. Then he snatched a burning length of wood from the fire and waved it frantically until it burst into a blaze and became a torch. Rifle grasped in one hand and the torch in the other, he plunged into the underbrush. Little chittering things fled to escape him. He did not find the scyther. He found chewed-up bushes and soil churned by flying metal, and he found five lumps of flesh and fur, and these he brought back to the fire. Now the fear that had been stalking him, keeping just beyond his reach, walked out from the shadows and hunkered by the campfire with him. He placed the rifle within easy reach and arranged the five bloody chunks on the ground close to the fire and he tried, with trembling fingers, to restore them to the shape they'd been before the bullets struck them. And that was a good one, he thought with grim irony, because they had no shape. They had been part of the scyther, and you killed the scyther inch by inch, not with a single shot. You knocked a pound of meat off it the first time, 
and the next time you shot off another pound or two. And if you got enough shots at it, you finally carved it down to size, and maybe you could kill it then, although he wasn't sure. He was afraid. He admitted that he was, and he squatted there and watched his fingers shake, and he kept his jaws clamped tight to stop the chatter of his teeth. The fear had been getting closer all the time. He knew it had moved in by a step or two when Sipar cut its throat, and why in the name of God had the damn fool done it? It made no sense at all. He had wondered about Sipar's loyalties, and the very loyalties that he had dismissed as a sheer impossibility had been the answer after all. In the end, for some obscure reason, obscure to humans, that is, Sipar's loyalty had been to the scyther. But then what was the use of searching for any reason in it? Nothing that had happened made any sense. It made no sense that a beast one was pursuing should up and talk to one, although it did fit in with the theory of the crisis beast he had fashioned in his mind. Progressive adaptation, he told himself. Carry adaptation far enough and you'd reach communication. But might not the scyther's power of adaptation be running down? Had the scyther gone about as far as it could force itself to go? Maybe so, he thought. It might be worth a gamble. Sipar's suicide, for all its casualness, bore the overtones of last-notch desperation. And the scyther's speaking to Duncan, its attempt to parley with him, contained a note of weakness. The arrow had failed, and the rock sight had failed, and so had Sipar's death. What next would the scyther try? Had it anything to try? Tomorrow he'd find out. Tomorrow he'd go on. He couldn't turn back now. He was too deeply involved. He'd always wonder, if he turned back now, whether another hour or two might not have seen the end of it. There were too many questions, too much mystery. There was now far more at stake than ten rows of Vua. Another day might make some sense of it, might banish the dread walker that trod upon his heels, might bring some peace of mind. As it stood right at the moment, none of it made sense. But even as he thought it, suddenly one of the bits of bloody flesh and mangled fur made sense. Beneath the punching and prodding of his fingers, it had assumed a shape. Breathlessly, Duncan bent above it, not believing, not even wanting to believe, hoping frantically that it should prove completely wrong. But there was nothing wrong with it. The shape was there and could not be denied. It had somehow fitted back into its natural shape, and it was a baby screamer. Well, maybe not a baby, but at least a tiny screamer. Duncan sat back on his heels and sweated. He wiped his bloody hands upon the ground. He wondered what other shapes he'd find if he put back into proper place the other hunks of limpness that lay beside the fire. He tried and failed. They were too smashed and torn. He picked them up and tossed them in the fire. He took up his rifle and walked round the fire, sat down with his back against a tree, cradling the gun across his knees. Those little scurrying feet, he wondered, like the scampering of a thousand busy mice. He had heard them twice, that first night in the thicket by the waterhole, and again tonight. And what could the scyther be? Certainly not the simple, uncomplicated, marauding animal he had thought to start with. A hive beast? A host animal? A thing masquerading in many different forms? Shotwell, trained in such deductions, might make a fairly accurate guess, but Shotwell was not here. He was at the farm, fretting, more than likely, over Duncan's failure to return. Finally, the first light of morning began to filter through the forest, and it was not the glaring clean white light of the open plain and bush, but a softened, diluted, fuzzy green light to match the smothering vegetation. The night noises died away, and the noises of the day took up, the soarings of unseen insects, 
the screechings of hidden birds, and something far away began to make a noise that sounded like an empty barrel falling slowly down a stairway. What little coolness the night had brought dissipated swiftly, and the heat clamped down, a breathless, relentless heat that quivered in the air. Circling, Duncan picked up the side of the trail, not more than a hundred yards from camp. The beast had been travelling fast. The pug marks were deeply sunk and widely spaced. Duncan followed as rapidly as he dared. It was a temptation to follow at a run, to match the scyther's speed, for the trail was plain and fresh, and it fairly beckoned. And that was wrong, Duncan told himself. It was too fresh, too plain, almost as if the animal had gone to endless trouble so that the human could not miss the trail. He stopped his trailing and crouched beside a tree and studied the tracks ahead. His hands were too tense upon the gun, his body keyed too high and fine. He forced himself to take slow, deep breaths. He had to calm himself. He had to loosen up. He studied the tracks ahead, four bunched pug marks, then a long leap interval, then four more bunched tracks, and between the sets of marks the forest floor was innocent and smooth. Too smooth, perhaps. Especially the third one from him. Too smooth and somehow artificial, as if someone had patted it with gentle hands to make it unsuspicious. Duncan sucked his breath in slowly. Trap? Or was his imagination playing tricks on him? And if it were a trap, he would have fallen into it if he had kept on following as he had started out. Now there was something else, a strange uneasiness, and he stirred uncomfortably, casting frantically for some clue as to what it was. He rose and stepped out from the tree with the gun at ready. What a perfect place to set a trap, he thought. One would be looking at the pug marks, never at the space between them, for the space between would be neutral ground, safe to stride upon. Oh, clever scyther, he said to himself. Oh, clever, clever scyther. And now he knew what the other trouble was, the great uneasiness. It was the sense of being watched. Somewhere up ahead the scyther was crouched, watching and waiting, anxious or exultant, maybe even with laughter rumbling in its throat. He walked slowly forward until he reached the third set of tracks, and he saw that he had been right. The little area ahead was smoother than it should be. Scyther, he called. His voice was far louder than he had meant it to be, and he stood astonished and a bit abashed. Then he realised why it was so loud. It was the only sound there was. The forest suddenly had fallen silent. The insects and birds were quiet, and the thing in the distance had quit falling down the stairs. Even the leaves were silent. There was no rustle in them, and they hung limp upon their stems. There was a feeling of doom, and the green light had changed to a copper light, and everything was still. And the light was copper. Duncan spun around in panic. There was no place for him to hide. Before he could take another step, the schoon came, and the winds rushed out of nowhere. The air was clogged with flying leaves and debris. Trees snapped and popped and tumbled in the air. The wind hurled Duncan to his knees, and as he fought to regain his feet, he remembered, in a blinding flash of total recall, how it had looked from atop the escarpment, the boiling fury of the winds and the mad swirling of the coppery mist, and how the trees had whipped in whirlpool fashion. He came half erect and stumbled, clawing at the ground in an attempt to get up again, while inside his brain an insistent, clicking voice cried out for him to run, and somewhere another voice said to lie flat upon the ground to dig in as best he could. Something struck him from behind, and he went down, pinned flat, with his rifle wedged beneath him. He cracked his head upon the ground, and the world whirled sickeningly, and plastered his face with a handful of mud and tattered leaves. He tried to crawl and couldn't, for something had grabbed him by the ankle, and was hanging on. 
With a frantic hand, he clawed the mess out of his eyes, spat it from his mouth. Across the spinning ground, something black and angular tumbled rapidly. It was coming straight towards him, and he saw it was the scyther, and that in another second it would be on top of him. He threw up an arm across his face with the elbow crooked to take the impact of the wind-blown scyther and to ward it off. But it never reached him. Less than a yard away, the ground opened up to take the scyther, and it was no longer there. Suddenly the wind cut off and the leaves once more hung motionless and the heat clamped down again, and that was the end of it. The schoon had come and struck and gone. Minutes, Duncan wondered, or perhaps no more than seconds, but in those seconds the forest had been flattened and the trees lay in shattered heaps. He stopped his trailing and crouched beside a tree and studied the tracks ahead. He raised himself on an elbow and looked to see what was the matter with his foot, and he saw that a fallen tree had trapped his foot beneath it. He tugged a few times experimentally. It was no use. Two close-set limbs, branching almost at right angles from the hole, had been driven deep into the ground, and his foot, he saw, had been caught at the ankle in the fork of the buried branches. The foot didn't hurt. Not yet. It didn't seem to be there at all. He tried wiggling his toes and felt none. He wiped the sweat off his face with a shirt sleeve and fought to force down the panic that was rising in him. Getting panicky was the worst thing a man could do in a spot like this. The thing to do was to take stock of the situation, figure out the best approach, then go ahead and try it. The tree looked heavy, but perhaps he could handle it if he had to, although there was the danger that if he shifted it, the bowl might settle more solidly and crush his foot beneath it. At the moment, the two heavy branches, thrust into the ground on either side of his ankle, were holding most of the tree's weight off his foot. The best thing to do, he decided, was to dig the ground away beneath his foot until he could pull it out. He twisted around and started digging with the fingers of one hand. Beneath the thin covering of hummus, he struck a solid surface and his fingers slid along it. With mounting alarm, he explored the ground, scratching at the hummus. There was nothing but rock, some long-buried boulder, the top of which lay just beneath the ground. His foot was trapped beneath a heavy tree and a massive boulder, held securely in place by forked branches that had forced their splintering way down along the boulder's sides. He lay back, propped on an elbow. It was evident that he could do nothing about the buried boulder. If he was going to do anything, his problem was the tree. To move the tree, he would need a lever, and he had a good, stout lever in his rifle. It would be a shame, he thought a little wryly, to use the gun for such a purpose, but he had no choice. He worked for an hour, and it was no good. Even with the rifle as a pry, he could not budge the tree. He lay back, defeated, breathing hard, wringing wet with perspiration. He grimaced at the sky. All right, Scyther, he thought. You won out in the end, but it took a skun to do it. With all your tricks, you couldn't do the job until... Then he remembered. He sat up, hurriedly. Scyther, he called. The scyther had fallen into a hole that had opened in the ground. The hole was less than an arm's length away from him, with a little debris around its edges still trickling into it. Duncan stretched out his body, lying flat upon the ground, and looked into the hole. There, at the bottom of it, was the scyther. It was the first time he'd gotten a good look at the scyther, and it was a crazily put-together thing. It seemed to have nothing functional about it, and it looked more like a heap of something just thrown on the ground than it did an animal. The hole, he saw, was more than an ordinary hole. It was a pit, and very cleverly constructed. The mouth was about four feet in diameter, and it widened to roughly twice that at the bottom. It was, in general, bottle-shaped, 
with an incurving shoulder at the top, so that anything that fell in could not climb out. Anything falling into that pit was in to stay. This, Duncan knew, was what had laid beneath that too smooth interval between the two sets of scyther tracks. The scyther had worked all night to dig it, then had carried away the dirt dug out of the pit, and had built a flimsy camouflage cover over it. Then it had gone back and made the trail that was so loud and clear, so easy to make out and follow. And having done all that, having laboured hard and stealthily, the scyther had settled down to watch, to make sure the following human had fallen in the pit. "'Hi, pal,' said Duncan. "'How are you making out?' The scyther did not answer. "'Classy pit,' said Duncan. "'Do you always turn up in luxury like this?' but the scyther did not answer. Something queer was happening to the scyther. It was coming all apart. Duncan watched with fascinated horror as the scyther broke down into a thousand lumps of motion that scurried in the pit and tried to scramble up its sides, only to fall back in tiny showers of sand. Amid the scurrying lumps, one thing remained intact, a fragile object that resembled nothing quite so much as the stripped skeleton of a Thanksgiving turkey. But it was a most extraordinary Thanksgiving skeleton, for it throbbed with pulsing life and glowed with a steady violet light. Chitterings and squeakings came out of the pit, and the softer patter of tiny running feet, and as Duncan's eyes became accustomed to the darkness of the pit, he began to make out the forms of some of the scurrying shapes. There were tiny screamers, and some donovans, and sawmill birds, and a bevy of kill devils, and something else as well. Duncan raised a hand and pressed it against his eyes, then took it quickly away. The little faces still were there, looking up as if beseeching him, with the white shine of their teeth and the white rolling of their eyes. He felt horror wrenching at his stomach, and the sour, bitter taste of revulsion welled into his throat, but he fought it down, harking back to that day at the farm before they had started on the hunt. "'I can track down anything but screamers, stilt birds, longhorns and donovans,' Sipa had told him solemnly. "'Those are my taboos.' And Sipa was also their taboo, for he had not feared the Donovan. Sipa had been, however, somewhat fearful of the screamers in the dead of the night, because the native had told him reasonably, screamers were forgetful. Forgetful of what? Forgetful of the scyther mother? Forgetful of the motley brood in which they had spent their childhood? For that was the only answer to what was running in the pit, and the whole unsuspected answer to the enigma against which men like Shotwell had frustratedly banged their heads for years. Strange, he told himself. All right, it might be strange, but if it worked, what difference did it make? So the planet's denizens were sexless because there was no need of sex. What was wrong with that? It might, in fact, Duncan admitted to himself, head off a lot of trouble. No family spats, no triangle trouble, no fighting over mates. While it might be unexciting, it did seem downright peaceful. And since there was no sex, the Scyther species was the planetary mother. But more than just a mother. The Scyther, more than likely was mother-father, incubator, nursery, teacher, and perhaps many other things beside, all rolled into one. In many ways, he thought, it might make a lot of sense. Here, natural selection would be ruled out, and ecology could be controlled in considerable degree, and mutation might even be a matter of deliberate choice, rather than random happenstance. And it would make for a potential planetary unity such as no other world had ever known. Everything here was kin to everything else. Here was a planet where man, or any other alien, must learn to tread most softly. For it was not inconceivable that, in a crisis or a clash of interests, one might find himself faced suddenly with a unified and cooperating planet, with every form of life making common cause against the interloper. 
the little scurrying things had given up. They had gone back to their places, clustered around the pulsing violet of the Thanksgiving skeleton, each one fitting into place until the scyther had taken shape again. As if, Duncan told himself, blood and nerve and muscle had come back from a brief vacation to form the beast anew. Mister, asked the scyther, what do we do now? You should know, Duncan told it. You were the one who dug the pit. I split myself. "'the scyther said. "'A part of me dug the pit, "'and the other part that stayed on the surface "'got me out when the job was done.' "'Convenient,' grunted Duncan. "'And it was convenient. "'That was what had happened to the scyther "'when he had shot at it. "'It had split into all its component parts "'and had got away. "'And that night, beside the waterhole, "'it had spied on him, "'again in the form of all its separate parts, "'from the safety of the thicket. "'You are caught, and so am I,' the scyther said. "'Both of us will die here. "'It seems a fitting end to our association.' "'Do you not agree with me?' "'I'll get you out,' said Duncan, wearily. "'I have no quarrel with children.' He dragged the rifle toward him and unhooked the sling from the stock. Carefully he lowered the gun by the sling, still attached to the barrel, down into the pit. The scyther reared up and grasped it with its forepaws. "'Easy now,' Duncan cautioned. "'You're heavy. I don't know if I can hold you.' But he needn't have worried. The little ones were detaching themselves and scrambling up the rifle and the sling. They reached his extended arms and ran up them with scrabbling claws. Little sneering screamers and the comic stilt birds and the mouse-sized kill-devils that snarled at him as they climbed. And the little grinning natives. Not babies, scarcely children, but small additions of full-grown humanoids. And the weird Donovans, scampering happily. They came climbing up his arms and across his shoulders and milled about on the ground beside him, waiting for the others. And finally the scyther, not skinned down to the bare bones of its Thanksgiving turkey size, but far smaller than it had been, climbed awkwardly up the rifle and the sling to safety. Duncan hauled the rifle up and twisted himself into a sitting position. The scyther, he saw, was reassembling. He watched in fascination as the restless miniatures of the planet's life swarmed and seethed like a hive of bees, each one clicking into place to form the entire beast. And now the scyther was complete, yet small, still small, no more than lion-size. But it is such a little one, Zakara had argued with him that morning at the farm. It is such a young one. Just a young brood, no more than suckling infants, if suckling was the word, or even some kind of wild approximation and through the months and years the scyther would grow, with the growing of its diverse children, until it became a monstrous thing. It stood there, looking at Duncan and the tree. Now, said Duncan, if you'll push on the tree, I think that between the two of us... It is too bad, the scyther said, and wheeled itself about. He watched it go loping off. Hey! he yelled, but it didn't stop. He grabbed up the rifle and had it halfway to his shoulder before he remembered how absolutely futile it was to shoot at the scyther. He let the rifle down. The dirty, ungrateful double-crossing! He stopped himself. There was no profit in rage. When you were in a jam, you did the best you could. You figured out the problem and you picked the course that seemed best, and you didn't panic at the odds. He laid the rifle in his lap and started to hook up the sling, and it was not until then that he saw the barrel was packed with sand and dirt. He sat numbly for a moment, thinking back to how close he had been to firing at the scyther, and if that barrel was packed hard enough or deep enough, he might have had an exploding weapon in his hands. He had used the rifle as a crowbar, which was no way to use a gun. That was one way, he told himself, that was guaranteed to ruin it. 
Duncan hunted around and found a twig and dug at the clogged muscle, but the dirt was jammed too firmly in it, and he made little progress. He dropped the twig and was hunting for another, stronger one, when he caught the motion in a nearby clump of brush. He watched closely for a moment, and there was nothing, so he resumed the hunt for a stronger twig. He found one and started poking at the muzzle, and there was another flash of motion. He twisted around. Not more than twenty feet away, a screamer sat easily on its haunches. Its tongue was lolling out, and it had what looked like a grin upon its face. And there was another, just at the edge of the clump of brush, where he had caught the motion first. There were others as well, he knew. He could hear them sliding through the tangle of fallen trees, could sense the soft padding of their feet. The executioners, he thought. The scyther certainly had not wasted any time. He raised the rifle and wrapped the barrel smartly on the fallen tree, trying to dislodge the obstruction in the bore, but it didn't budge. The barrel was still packed with sand. But no matter. He'd have to fire anyhow and take whatever chance there was. He shoved the control to automatic and tilted up the muzzle. There were six of them now, sitting in a ragged row, grinning at him, not in any hurry. They were sure of him, and there was no hurry. He'd still be there when they decided to move in. And there were others on all sides of him. Once it started, he wouldn't have a chance. It'll be expensive, gents, he told them. And he was astonished at how calm, how coldly objective he could be now that the chips were down. But that was the way it was, he realised. He'd thought a while ago how a man might suddenly find himself face to face with an aroused and cooperating planet. Maybe this was it, in miniature. The scyther had obviously passed the word along. Man back there needs killing. Go and get him. Just like that, for a scyther would be the power here, a life force, the giver of life, the decider of life, the repository of all animal life on the entire planet. There was more than one of them, of course. Probably they had home districts, spheres of influence and responsibility mapped out, and each one would be a power supreme in its own district. Momism, he thought with a sour grin, Momism at its absolute peak. Nevertheless, he told himself, it wasn't too bad a system if you wanted to consider it objectively. But he was in a poor position to be objective about that or anything else. The screamers were inching closer, hitching themselves forward slowly on their bottoms. I'm going to set up a deadline for you critters, Duncan called out. Just two feet farther up, up to that rock, and I let you have it. He'd get all six of them, of course, but the shots would be the signal for the general rush by all those other animals slinking in the brush. If he were free, if he were on his feet, possibly he could beat them off, but pinned as he was, he didn't have a chance. It would all be over less than a minute after he opened fire. He might, he figured, last as long as that. The six inched closer and he raised the rifle. But they stopped and moved no farther. Their ears lifted just a little, as if they might be listening, and the grins dropped from their faces. They squirmed uneasily, and assumed a look of guilt, and, like shadows, they were gone, melting away so swiftly that he scarcely saw them go. Duncan sat quietly, listening, but he could hear no sound. Reprieve, he thought. But for how long? Something had scared them off, but in a while they might be back. He had to get out of here, and he had to make it fast. If he could find a longer lever, he could move the tree. There was a branch slanting up from the top side of the fallen tree. It was almost four inches at the butt, and it carried its diameter well. He slid the knife from his belt and looked at it. Too small, too thin, he thought, to chisel through a four-inch branch, but it was all he had. 
When a man was desperate enough, though, when his very life depended on it, he would do anything. He hitched himself along, sliding towards the point where the branch protruded from the tree. His pinned leg protested with stabs of pain as his body wrenched it around. He gritted his teeth and pushed himself closer. Pain slashed through his leg again, and he was still long inches from the branch. He tried once more, then gave up. He lay panting on the ground. There was just one thing left. He'd have to try to hack out a notch in the trunk just above his leg. No, that would be next to impossible, for he'd be cutting into the walled and twisted grain at the base of the supporting fork. Either that, or cut off his foot, and that was even more impossible. A man would faint before he got the job done. It was useless, he knew. He could do neither one. There was nothing he could do. For the first time, he admitted to himself, he would stay here and die. Shotwell, back at the farm, in a day or two, might set out hunting for him. But Shotwell would never find him. And anyhow, by nightfall, if not sooner, the screamers would be back. He laughed gruffly in his throat, laughing at himself. The scyther had won the hunt hands down. It had used a human weakness to win, and then had used that same human weakness to achieve a viciously poetic vengeance. After all, what could one expect? One could not equate human ethics with the ethics of the scyther. Might not human ethics, in certain cases, seem as weird and illogical, as infamous and ungrateful to an alien? He hunted for a twig and began working again to clean the rifle bore. A crashing behind him twisted him around and he saw the scyther. Behind the scyther stalked a donovan. He tossed away the twig and raised the gun. No, said the scyther sharply. The donovan tramped purposefully forward, and Duncan felt the prickling of the skin along his back. It was a frightful thing. Nothing could stand before a donovan. The screamers had turned tail and run when they had heard it a couple of miles or more away. The donovan was named for the first known human to be killed by one. That first was only one of many. The role of donovan victims ran long, and no wonder, Duncan thought. It was the closest he had ever been to one of the beasts, and he felt a coldness creeping over him. It was like an elephant and a tiger and a grizzly bear wrapped in the self-same hide. It was the most vicious fighting machine that ever had been spawned. He lowered the rifle. There would be no point in shooting. In two quick strides, the beast could be upon him. The donovan almost stepped on him, and he flinched away. Then the great head lowered and gave the fallen tree a butt, and the tree bounced for a yard or two. The donovan kept on walking. Its powerfully muscled stern moved into the brush, and out of sight. Now we are even, said the scyther. I had to get some help. Duncan grunted. He flexed the leg that had been trapped, and he could not feel the foot. Using his rifle as a cane, he pulled himself erect. He tried putting weight on the injured foot, and it screamed with pain. He braced himself with the rifle, and rotated so that he could face the scyther. Thanks, pal, he said. I didn't think you'd do it. You will not hunt me now? Duncan shook his head. I'm in no shape for hunting. I'm hidden home. It was the vuer, wasn't it? That was why you hunted me. The vuer is my livelihood, said Duncan. I cannot let you eat it. The scyther stood silently, and Duncan watched it for a moment. Then he wheeled. Using the rifle for a crutch, he started hobbling away. The scyther hurried to catch up with him. Let us make a bargain, mister. I will not eat the vuer, and you will not hunt me. Is that fair enough? That is fine with me, said Duncan. Let us shake on it. He put down a hand, and the scyther lifted up a paw. 
They shook somewhat awkwardly, but very solemnly. Now, the scyther said, I will see you home. The screamers would have you before you got out of the woods. Part 6 They halted on a knoll. Below them lay the farm, with the vua rose straight and green in the red soil of the fields. You can make it from here, the scyther said. I am wearing thin. It is an awful effort to keep on being smart. I want to go back to ignorance and comfort. It was nice knowing you, Duncan told it politely, and uh, thanks for sticking with me. He started down the hill, leaning heavily on the rifle crutch. Then he frowned troubledly and turned back. Look, he said, you'll go back to animal again. Then you'll forget. One of these days, you'll see all that nice, tender vua, and... Very simple, said the scyther. If you find me in the vua, just begin hunting me. With you after me, I will quickly get smart and remember once again, and it will be all right. Sure, agreed Duncan. I guess that'll work. The scyther watched him go stumping down the hill. Admirable, it thought. Next time I have a brood, I think I'll raise a dozen like him. It turned around and headed for the deeper brush. It felt intelligence slipping from it, felt the old, uncaring comfort coming back again. But it glowed with anticipation, seized with happiness at the big surprise it had in store for its new-found friend. Won't he be happy and surprised when I dropped him at his door, it thought. Will he ever be pleased? <laughs> There you go. As I like to say on it, copyright is any book of that wants it. There you go. It's yours. Take it. Do what you want with it. That's how we get it. So next up is the annual two th- or the 2011 Sofa Nord Awards. And this time, fantastic. Phil Horwood stepped into the shoes of Mark Bowman and took over. And like I say, it literally, it wouldn't happen, you know, if it wasn't for the kind people, you know, you're all out there who muck in and kind of get this ship going. There are so many strands off in Starship Sova that I just, honestly, I could not do it. Like I say, Phil came in and, you know, sifted all through and got it all sorted out. And there's some work went into this, you know, there is such a lot of work went into it. Phil, hats off to you, do you know what I mean? True professional, just couple of questions and that was it that's all i've answered a couple of questions and that was it so i will play this and please there will be an email sent out if you don't get that email do pop over to the front of the website or the forums we'll get it in there the link make your vote you can vote as many times you want for this first round and we'll you know it's it's an annual event and it's and it's now because we are the hugo award you know what i mean winning sure has a bit of gravitas behind it as well, so do look out for that. Right, Phil, sir. Hi there, listeners. It's Phil Horwood here to kick off the nomination round for the third annual Starship Sofa Sofanaut Awards. These are the awards where you, a fan of this Hugo Honoured podcast, get to vote for your favourite stories, interviews, narrators, fact article contributors and artists. And this year we're asking you to nominate your favourite show for the year and also choose an SF writer who you think should be in the running for the 2011 Honorary Sofanaut Award. These awards encompass episodes 111 right up to and including episode 164, so that's all Oral Delights episodes released between 2nd of December 2009 and the 23rd of November 2010. The seven categories in this year's awards are Best Main Fiction, which includes all the main fiction stories for each episode, any serialised stories, and also the old and the new stories featured in the monthly Then and Now episodes. Next we have the Best Narrator category, 
and that includes the people who've provided narration for stories and poetry featured on Starship Sofa over the year. We also have a category for Best Fact Article Contributor, and the online poll includes both the contributor's name and the name of their article or series of articles. Best Cover Art is next, and this includes the 12 wonderful artworks created for major stories throughout the year. Following this is the Best Interview category, where you can choose from the interviews and interrogations conducted by Tony. A new category is Best Show, where you can choose your favourite Oral Delights episode for the year. Finally, we'd like you to nominate an SF author who you think should be in the running for the 2011 Honorary Sofanaut Award. This can include authors who featured in the podcast during the year, but can also include other SF authors who you feel deserve to be recognised by Starship Sofa. Voting is via an online poll, and you'll find the link on the homepage at starshipsofa.com. Remember that this is the nomination round where you vote just once, but you may vote for as many entries in each category as you wish. Nominations close on Sunday, December 19, and the short list of nominees will be announced on episode 168, along with details of how you can vote for the finalists. I urge each and every one of you to visit starshipsofa.com to cast your nominations for the people and things you like best on this podcast. The website is a fantastic resource to remind you of the great stories, people, artwork and articles featured on Oral Delights, and the good folk on the Starship Sofa forums can help jog your memories. So in summary, the 2011 Sofanaut Award nominations, taken episodes 111 through to and including episode 164. Use the website and forums if you need to remind yourself of the oral delights you've experienced over the past 12 months, and please cast your nominations before 19th of December. Thank you. There you go. Phil, thank you so much. You know, <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, Phil said these, <laughs> and this happens to most, you know, narrators. Don't forget, I'm looking for narrators. If you want to have a little go, get in touch with us. But Phil sent over the first, or the first test of his, you know, doing this little voice thing. And it was <laughs> shocking. And he had, I don't know how many goes, you know what I mean? I think I had him four or five goes doing this. And in the end, you know, it was the old blankets over the head talking into the microphone. Phil, you're a big star. Thank you so much. So we have a little promo by Telegraph Connect. The year is 2111. Earth has launched the first generational ship. What happens a year outside of the solar system to the normal people who reside on the ship? No captain or commanders here, just the average Joe or Jane living out their days. This is no two-hour cruise. They are here for the long haul of four centuries. They have to live and raise a family of their own. What would life be like inside this city-sized ship? Does this sound like writing playground you'd be interested in? Join Telegraph Connect, a new ebook publisher for their first anthology. Stories are due by April 18th, 2011 for inclusion. Check out telegraphconnect.com for more information. Background music is by incompetech.com. And there you go. I will put a like. See, I'll put a link on to Telegraph Connect. Do pop over there. Say hello and 
join in there. Have a chance of getting into that book. So that's it. Oral's Lights. 165. Again, apologies if there was no then and now, you know, if you kind of eagerly look forward to that. But it's still, you know, we're still going to play some good old science fiction, you know, from that kind of that bygone era. If you want to help, you know, please get in touch. I'd certainly narrate, you know. And I'm also looking for... I've got this other little little idea that's, you know, still a, a germ, a germ. <laughs> still, you know, kicking around in my me, in me mind there. If I need someone to, to kind of help with that, to kind of search out things on the internet, you know, and, and get questions sorted out. So if you kind of, into, you know, have a feeling that you might like that to do help us out with that, get in touch and explain a little bit more. Like I say, I'm not going to explain it now because it's still just a little, little seed and it hasn't germinated. So... Get in touch if you you know if you're used to kind of trailing on the internet and looking for things and you're good at that and you like science fiction. I could I could do with someone to help me out with that little idea I've got. There you go, one six five. Put to bed. Hope you enjoyed it. Just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 